I am not real confident that there is some solution that's going to change the minds of a large number of people that are now convinced of the voter fraud narrative. And that's hard because we know that this is this is becomes a vulnerability at the heart of democracy when people no longer trust the results of their election. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 21st, 2021. Today, we're bringing you the first episode of our Arbiters of Truth miniseries under the Biden administration. During his inaugural address yesterday, President Biden spoke about the subject of this podcast, disinformation. There is truth and there are lies, Biden said, lies told for power and for profit. And he asked Americans to unify rather than turn inward against those who don't get their news from the same sources you do. But in an era of QAnon and pandemic disinformation, how will that unification be possible? The day before the inauguration, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Kate Starbird, an associate professor of human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. She last came on the podcast in March 2020 to discuss disinformation and misinformation around the coronavirus. And she's had a long year since then researching online ecosystems around the pandemic and supposed voter fraud. And the Capitol riot on January 6th threw all this into sharp relief as the things that Kate studies every day boiled over into mainstream consciousness with a vengeance. We spoke with Kate about what led up to the riot, what the disinformation landscape looks like now, and what kind of work will be required to move forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 21st. Information disorder during and after the Trump presidency. Kate, thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So we had you on the show back on March 16, 2020, to talk about misinformation about the pandemic. And looking back on that moment now feels sort of like looking back at characters at the start of an apocalypse movie or something before their clothes have become all torn and bloody. I mean, what did we know March 16? It feels like another world now. Since then, not only has there been 10 months of pandemic, there's also been the 2020 US election, which you were closely monitoring, as well as, of course, the riot at the Capitol, which we will be asking and talking about today. So before moving on, though, I just like want to ask how you are. Like, what has the last 10 months been like as a disinformation researcher? Uh, Busy, for sure. Uh, That's such a good question. It's such a question we we asked our our students and other researchers on our team to, to reflect on. Actually, every week now we have kind of a session where we really talk about that because just to be studying some of this stuff so closely... And then I mean, we've been studying it for years and, and seeing the toxicity, but now to see that toxicity playing out in physical spaces in ways that are really affecting people's lives is a little disturbing. But I, th- I guess one of the just weird feeling that I've, that I've had and some others in this space have had in recent weeks, it's, it's like we've been seeing this for so long that we're almost... It's not comforting, but there's like, oh, everybody else can see it now too, <laughs> you know, and everyone else can can see some of these things too. And so um, there is this piece of it that in some ways, being a disinformation researcher, we've been prepared, been preparing for years to for some of this stuff because we've been watching it develop all along. Yeah. So so tell us more about that feeling. I noticed that you you tweeted that on the, the day of the Capitol riot as well, that there is a kind of weird feeling of everyone suddenly noticing what was right in front of their nose all along and that you've, of course, been been studying for so long. Just 
Tell us more about what you meant by that and and how you understand that dynamic. Yeah, I was trying to explain this to my partner. We were walking this morning, which was something we've done every morning of the pandemic. Uh, it's our it's our exercise and our one time to be outside. But we, I was really talking about this, seeing not just the the conversations that we've been studying, the conversations, the toxicities, but also the characters, the the profiles. I, a few years ago, I went into the QAnon data. I've been collecting it since 2018. A few years ago, I went in for, for several weeks one summer and just, um, I think it was two, a summer and a half ago, uh, and just tried to see what was going on there. It was so disturbing. But one of the things that I saw was these are real people, and they had these sort of symbols and and a lot of American flag symbols and, and a lot of excitement to be around each other and also just expressing really ideas that just seemed like an alternative reality. And then now to see those same people, you know, physically present in a, in a space and, and, and taking part in, a, in an act of violence against our, our country and really thinking that they were being patriots as they were doing it, it was both disturbing, it was profoundly disturbed like everyone else. But I wasn't surprised um, because it was just this is just the thing we've been looking at. It's just been growing, growing, growing. And now and now here it is just not in the online world, but manifesting um, in the physical world as well. So why do you think this stuff that you have been watching and seeing for ages didn't get more traction and attention broadly before now? Do you think that there's still this sense that, oh, if it's online, it's not real? Or is it some sort of denial of not wanting to admit that there's a problem in part because it's so scary what what it says? Or do you think it's something else? There's a lot. There's actually, I think, several reasons that come together in that space. I can look back, I'm going to look back personally, and then I'll look back a little more broadly, but looking back personally, my own research trajectory, we started seeing this kind of conspiracy theorizing, like pervasive conspiracy theorizing, kind of mixing with some toxic political elements back in 2013, 2014. And we actually chose as a research team not to focus on it. We didn't want to report on it. We didn't want to be giving talks about conspiracy theories. It seemed, at the time, it it both seemed marginal, but it seemed like I didn't want to be known as that person, right? We didn't want to be the people that went around talking about conspiracy theories. So there was this kind of like feeling that that we didn't want to be part of it because it was something that it was a little distasteful. It, it made us feel uncomfortable. It made us feel disoriented. And so there was a sort of a piece of it was that it just wasn't a, a comfortable thing to be studying. On the, at the same time, you know, starting in 2016-17, we start realizing well, we have to say this is really important. And we're watching QAnon develop. We're not the only ones doing. There's other researchers doing that. There's other journalists doing that. And we're kind of having this back channel conversation of like, should we be reporting on this? Should we be advertising it? Should we be talking about it? And there was this one kind of strong set of recommendations that was, you know, by reporting on it, we're actually going to help it go mainstream. We're going to help recruit more people into these communities that that are so toxic. And I think. There was this fear uh, of doing some of that early reporting when it was still quite small, that it would actually backfire and, and, and become part of you know, what was helping those communities grow. So um, I think those kind of things together are, are part of the reason that it took so long for people to start reporting on it, but uh, because folks knew it was there. Researchers did, journalists did, a few journalists picked up a couple studies, uh, you know, uh, did a couple stories early on, but, but I think there was a lot of reluctance to be be reporting on it. And when you say it was uncomfortable, do you mean 
that there was that that kind of reluctance and uncertainty about what the effects of writing about it were? Or was there something else? There were books. <laughs> I can't remember exactly which one I, I read it's, that they're really talking, you know, conspiracy theories have always been there. It's not a big, you know, it's not a big problem in society. And by over exotifying them, or, you know, making them seem so exciting or so big that we're actually not, you know, necessarily doing ourselves or their research community of service. So there was a little bit of that kind of criticism I'd seen from from earlier work. And, and that made us a little reluctant. And also just, I mean, I think I've already said it, but I just didn't want to be that person that went around talking about conspiracy theories, um, in part because it, it changes the nature of of your email inbox, um, because the people that believe in them are very passionate about them. And it leads to a lot of uncomfortable conversations and, and folks showing up at your office looking for you. So there was a little bit of, of that, but it wasn't like a fear as much as a just like, I just don't want to, I don't want to get my hands dirty with that. I'd rather be studying something that, that is, you know, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't exactly know how to explain it right now from this perspective. And we're just kind of like, you know, beating ourselves up about it. Like, why, why were we so reluctant? But, but, you know, six or seven years ago, it looked very different to us, the, the equation of whether or not this should be like a focal point of our research program. So let's talk about then the, the link between the disinformation and misinformation that you were researching when we last spoke about COVID-19 and the disinformation and misinformation that led to the spread of falsehoods about voter fraud and that, you know, this falsehood that the election was stolen that sort of culminated in the January 6th riot. You, you've made the point that there's a lot of overlap between these networks. Can you just sort of talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, it's, we're not, we haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I was just thinking today to, to launch one of my student research assistants into this space to really dig out the, the precise connections. But I think we can look back to the spring uh, of 2020 as a time when, um, in part due to the, pande- the conditions of the pandemic, the uncertainty, the disruption, and the fact that everybody was home <laughs> in front of their computers all day, I think, I think that's probably going to be a factor as well that there were these conditions for, as we expected, for misinformation to spread. Now, early on, it was mostly sort of rumors and accidental misinformation. But, you know, through, you know, starting a little bit in March, but into April and May, it, it started to kind of become more conspiracy theorizing that these certain theories took root, denying the origins of the disease, trying to claim it wasn't really as bad as people were saying, that the government was using it as an opportunity to control the population rather than trying to make people healthier. So there were, you know, these kind of conspiracy theories took root and they became politicized. You can even see just that some of the rumors and misinformation becomes politicized, the science becomes politicized, and then certainly the conspiracy theories become politicized. If we look at one sort of pivotal moment, I think you can look at the pandemic video. I don't know if you remember this video. It comes out, I think, in early May. Researcher Renee DeResta actually contacted me in April to say something was coming and she could see it developing around some of the characters that ended up being featured in the video. And the video is a very slickly produced video that basically encompasses many of the different conspiracy theories about COVID-19 and pushes out this message that it's a planned event about government control, that masks don't work, vaccines are going to be toxic. You know, all every kind of conspiracy theory you can imagine is kind of wrapped up in in this video, and it spreads widely. It gets millions of views. It probably got up to more than 20 million views if you count it across the different videos. And it spreads, and it begins to connect different networks of accounts. So if we look at some of our data, we can see 
anti-vaccine activists, which is where some of the personalities that are featured in the video come out of, anti-vaccine activists begin to intersect with QAnon conspiracy theorists and pro-Trump accounts. And actually the hyper-partisan right-wing media begins to amplify some of these characters in the video as well. And so you can see these connections developing between these different communities. And throughout the summer, those connections became more solidified and became, as I talk about it now, just the, the information system became wired to spread disinformation. And COVID-19 begins to blend into election 2020. And some of those same networks become active in spreading disinformation about the election, especially this sort of like false claims of, of massive voter fraud. And so we can actually see those elements begin to have the, the network connections come together. And we're going to try to do some measurement between you know how much overlap is it. But some of the same influencers in the COVID-19 conversation become influencers in the election 2020 conversation, especially the disinformation around it. And then we see some of the same characters from the pandemic video and some of the other disinformation campaigns about COVID-19 were in the Capitol building on January 6th. So the director of the pandemic video, I don't think it was in the building, but it was on the grounds as part of those protests. And one of the, the doctors from American frontline doctors who were spreading disinformation about COVID-19 in the summer was just arrested today um, for being in the Capitol building during the, during the violent takeover there. So you start to see these connections between the disinformation campaigns and the political toxicity that has, has motivated and manifested in the Capitol riots on January 6th. So there's some ways in which the events of January 6 feel like a very social media insurrection. It was incubated in groups centered around conspiracy theories about the election results and pandemic, as you said. And of course, you know, the image of the QAnon shaman in the Senate chamber is seared into our minds. The rioters live streamed and tweeted and parlayed the entire thing, which is now being used against them by law enforcement. Do you think that this was a uniquely social media inspired and, and turbocharged event? Or do you think it's sort of, I mean, you just talked then about how there were some really key bad actors and influences that were really driving the whole thing, perhaps, you know, being more of a top down rather than bottom up event? Oh, this is such an interesting question. I actually think that, that the disinformation campaign around election 2020 that motivates the event, the misinformation, disinformation we see in, in COVID-19 are profoundly participatory disinformation campaigns. And, and what I mean by participatory is that it is both top down and bottom up. At times, sort of elites and political uh, operators set the agenda, but the online crowd or the, the audiences help generate the narratives and, 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 and piece together the evidence that, that becomes part of these narratives. So it's this two-way relationship between uh, elites and media and, and politics and, the, and their audiences and their crowds. And so I think we're still kind of trying to conceptualize exactly how that works, but certainly social media is playing a massive role here because it allows things to be participatory in a way that they really weren't when we had sort of a limited set of gatekeepers that were setting the agenda and the rest of us were just information consumers. Well, now we're all information participants. And I think that definitely plays into the dynamics that we're seeing here in, in sort of pervasive disinformation around these events in the United States, the January 6th. Um, riots and violent takeover, as well as events that are happening all over the world. In some ways, other countries have seen some of these same dynamics earlier and manifested in some terrible conditions long before you know we've been facing them here in the United States. So 
yeah, I, I want to make sure that that we recognize that. But certainly, it's this this two way this two way dynamic. And even though the same influencers, as I pointed out, may have been in the COVID nineteen conversation and there at January in, on January sixth, it's not that they were controlling the, everything that went on. It's much more. It's much messier than that. And I think when we really start to unwind the different layers of what happened on January 6th, we are going to see these sort of internet cultures, this, this grievance that, that motivated a lot of people there. But inside that kind, of, that kind of messy, disorganized crowd were, you know, organized militias that had a plan and were trying to create a political outcome through violent actions. And I think it's going to be interesting as we begin to understand better what happened to disentangle some of those different dynamics and, and, and kind of learn how they go together. I don't have the answers to that right now, but I think there's some really interesting and important questions for us as researchers and journalists and everyone else, and whoever's going to be prosecuting as well, to answer these questions of how those different elements came together in what became those January 6 uh, riots. One thing I'm I'm wondering, building off a point you made earlier, is to what extent the kind of the participatory bottom up as well as top down elements of both the pandemic misinformation as well as voter fraud disinformation and misinformation is appealing particularly because of as you said the fact that everyone is sitting at home <laughs> you know a lot of people have lost their jobs people are cut off from their friends and looking for community and and so these sorts of ways of engaging with others might be not uniquely appealing, but particularly appealing during this time. Do you think there's anything to that or is that overstating it? Certainly when we look at, at the QAnon community and each, each of these different communities is so different. So let's talk, let's talk first a little bit about the QAnon community. So when we look at that community, there's been some great reflection and research and, and articles about how you know, for many people there that, that are that are coming together online around those ideas, it's a community. It's an online game experience. They're also, you know, they feel like they're volunteer. They're trying to help the world. They're, it's also sort of a religious experience. Like there's a lot that's happening, you know, not just information, but psychologically for the folks that are that are finding each other there and, and participating in, in developing. I mean, they're co-developing their ideology um, because it's this online game to, to figure out how all the evidence fits together. And I think there's, there's a, a lot that's compelling there, both like cognitively in terms of, you know, in terms of the entertainment value, but also psychologically in terms of what they get for feeling like they have agency in the world, feeling like they're part of something. I, when I first looked at the QAnon conversation, I ended up just focusing on this little group of people who would come together uh, every couple of weeks and they'd be, hey, Joe, how are you doing? Hey, Marty, let's go. We're going to hashtag together. And then they would tweet out the most the stuff that just would blow my mind. I couldn't believe that this is what they thought was was what they should be tweeting about. But then they'd be like, yeah, it's been really great to be with you today. And yeah, this was really rewarding. So you could see that this was like, you know, something that was about community and friendship and belonging. And so fast forward to, to you know, being during the pandemic. Yeah, I imagine that that is something that is is part of the motivations for why people are, are participating in QAnon. The other the other person we look at the election 2020 stuff. It's not this. It's not you know not everyone involved in in spreading false information around election 2020 is a QAnon believer. There is a very 
you're overlapping, but they're they're not the same exact crowd. But if you look at the people that were involved in some of the narratives that we saw develop, they had this idea that they were going to see voter fraud. They went to vote. The Sharpie pen they were using bled through. They thought that that would mean their vote wouldn't count, even though it was designed to do that. And it did, it did count. But they thought that their vote wouldn't count. And they got really upset and they felt disenfranchised. And so they actually, you know, in some of the, this is the Sharpie gate narrative we were studying, but this plays out across other narratives. They went to find the evidence to fit this voter fraud narrative that they were given by, by an elite. They, they found that evidence and then they shared it. And sometimes their celebrity influencers picked it up and retweeted it and repeated it. It became part of their collective narrative about what was going on. I can only imagine how powerful that experience is that it's not just that they were told that they experienced voter fraud. They misinterpreted the world to actually experience it. And so that kind of participatory dynamic, I don't think you can undo that by by giving somebody a set of facts that says it actually wasn't voter fraud. I think it's just such a powerful experience of of propaganda that is going to be hard because they can no longer disentangle um, their own experiences from the from the propaganda, from the disinformation narratives. Yeah, so I mean, that really tease up the question, and it's a simple one, so no pressure, but what do we do about it if if just facts aren't going to cut it? You know, there's sort of this real sense at the moment that some portion of the American populace is just stuck in an alternate reality that they're not particularly interested in coming back from, whether it's QAnon specifically or just more amorphous feelings about the illegitimacy of Biden's election or sort of general feelings of grievance. And that dynamic feels unsustainable for a democracy. So what do we do about it, Kate? <laughs> yeah, it's such a, I mean, that's the, the billion dollar question right now, trillion dollar question at this point. I am not real confident that there's some solution that's going to change the minds of a large number of people that are now convinced of the voter fraud narrative. And that's hard because we know that this is, this is, becomes a vulnerability at the heart of democracy when people no longer trust the results of their election. And so I don't know what we do to address what just happened because I'm, I, I think some of these, some of these people have, they, like I said, they experienced it so profoundly that, that there's no evidence that's going to, that's going to change their minds. And that's depressing, but I want to think that, that it's not that all hope is lost. When I, when I try to get hopeful, which I do from time to time, uh, it's that, you know, people may lose a little bit of their engagement in some of these communities over time as they return to other kinds of, of activities in their lives. And perhaps with some of their influencers not having that same kind of influence, them not being able to get that feedback on these platforms, uh, that their ideas are being heard by their, by their celebrity political leaders. I, I think there might be especially with the actions that some of the platforms have taken. I know we all don't necessarily agree on when those actions were taken, how they were taken, or even that they were taken. But I do think the effects of those may be that there is some decay in the number of people and their fervor of engagement with some of, with some of these ideas over time. But I don't think we're going to flip a switch and, and have you know, this large percentage of our population that, that now believes that there was massive voter fraud, we're going to flip some switch and have them all of a sudden not believe that anymore. It's, I don't think that's going to happen, certainly not in the next four years. It feels to me like I've, I've seen a, a surge recently in profiles of people who 
believe in QAnon or who believe that the election was rigged. Sort of these pieces where, you know, a reporter will find a person who believes this and sort of write this piece trying to figure out why this person believes this and if there's any way that they could sort of be brought back into the, you know, the gravitational pull of the truth. Um, and and when these pieces come out, there's always this kind of split reaction on social media. You know, some people praise the piece for sort of taking the time to try to really understand the subject. And other people are angry that the reporter is sort of implicitly asking that they take time to understand and connect sort of with a person who has no interest in extending that same empathy towards them because they think they're, you know, a, a baby killer or something like that. I mean, I wonder if you have thoughts on to what extent the way out of this is dependent on extending that empathy to people who are sort of seemingly locked into another reality. And honestly, you know, whether that's a reasonable ask to make of everyone who's stuck standing on the other side wondering what the hell is going on. Yeah, I think this is a hard question that we're going to have to face as a society. I agree that that we don't all have to go forgive everybody. <laughs> um, at the same time, we know that cycles of retribution can lead to really dark places for, for societies. And, and so the question is, how do we build bridges and with whom do we build bridges? And I think if I was going to recommend something, it would be to leave open the pathways of, of conversation and the, the possibility for bridge building with the people that we know and care about who have gone into some of these places and to kind of, you know, understand that they're not going to come all the way across the bridge towards us. We will have to probably take some steps that are going to be really uncomfortable that we don't want to take, but we don't have to meet them half halfway. Uh, they do, you know, there is a long way to go from some of these alternative realities to come back in coming back to a shared reality. Uh, and certainly I don't think that there's some symmetrical problem where people on both sides right now, the left and right political spectrum have, uh, have a similar distance to come to meet in a shared reality. But if we are to, to, to heal and become a stronger country, we do have to find a way to come back together. And I, I think that the best thing to, that we can start with is our, our own loved ones. And that doesn't mean that all of us have to reach out to all of the loved ones. There's some that we're just going to have to say, you know what, for now, I, I can't, I can't do it. But for others, if there's a possibility, that's what I try to do in my family is just leave open some of those lines of conversation and, and, and say, if you want to come, if you want to come over and talk to me, I, I'm here and maybe we'll, we'll build it back in an interpersonal level rather than trying to do it at an abstract level of, of understanding some other some other person who's fallen down the rabbit hole, but to start with the people that we know and care about the most. So you mentioned earlier platform responses and specifically their crackdown on QAnon, which has happened sort of, well, dramatically post-January 6th, but, you know, in the months before that as well. And it sort of feels like in the wake of January 6th, there was this obvious answer that platforms should have done more earlier. Do you feel that something like the Capitol riot was inevitable given the lack of action on the part of platforms or inadequate action on the part of platforms, I should say, given that there were takedowns earlier? You you opened this conversation by saying that there was this sense that the world had finally seen the physical manifestation of what you'd been watching online for years. So that sort of seems to suggest that you had this sense that it was inevitable that at some point it would bubble over. Or do you think that that's still kind of contingent and there isn't necessarily a clear point at which platforms should have done something different to prevent what occurred? 
Yeah. I don't necessarily ever believe in inevitability. Like there's certain things to come together and, and as, you know, if, if something had gone a little differently, maybe that doesn't manifest at that time and in that way. But we do have plenty of evidence of other things that had already happened in the world where the platforms have, you know, played a role. I happen, I many of you probably know her as well. I know Maria Reza, who's been talking about this for years, who's a journalist in the Philippines, who's now been arrested several times, but due to her work trying to hold accountable a government there that's been using disinformation against its own people. And she has talked about the role that in particular Facebook has played in that society and has talked about if, if, if Facebook, she said this in 2015, if Facebook doesn't change what they're doing, we're going to end up with a Trump presidency. And sure enough, we did. And she, you know, has kind of highlighted for me that like, this is, this is going on in other places. And these platforms have, have already played a role in this happening. It was in some ways, yes, only a matter of time. Now, how does it manifest and when does it manifest? You know, those those things are always a little bit random at the end of the day, but we've seen acts of terrorism that's been inspired by by online toxicities, you know, here in the US, but also all around the world. The Christchurch shootings come to mind. And so we've got we've got plenty of evidence already. What happened on January 6th seems to be that that it happened at the at the heart of of the US political process, that there'd been a long lead up of other kinds of things where the platforms were already starting to take little actions um, and then kind of looking at each other. I feel like it was like a set, they're all looking at each other, who's going to take the first step? And and then once a big step was taken, it all the dominoes began to fall. But the dominoes began to fall because everybody was on the, they were just ready to do it, but they didn't know that they had the mandate to do it. And I think January 6th kind of gave them the ability to do it without the political pushback that they feared uh, if they took over overly strong action against some of these things before we had this evidence of just how bad just how bad things could be if we continued to to keep going in the way we were. So let's then dig into the the specifics of Trump's ban from Twitter specifically. There's been some recent reporting from the Washington Post, which uh, I think has been widely misunderstood about how. The ban of Trump has led to a big drop in misinformation as a result of, you know, just sort of removing Trump from the the media ecosystem on Twitter, at least. Um, and I know that you have voiced some skepticism about the extent to which Trump's ban really is responsible for that big a drop. Can you talk us through that reporting and why you're skeptical of it? Yeah. You know, the, the trend of it, I don't deny at all. I do think that, that banning Donald Trump's account made a difference. It's going to make a difference in terms of reducing the amount of disinformation on Twitter and elsewhere, because actually he seeds it on Twitter and then it, and it flows across from there into other places. So I think it's going to make an impact. The difficulty is at the time that, that they took out Donald Trump's account, they also took out 70,000 other accounts. And when we look at our network graphs, we can see that many of those accounts came from the QAnon community. Not all of them, but many of them did. And so they took them all out at once. And so the measurement of like, oh, look, conversations about election fraud went down. Well, yes, it went down because Trump is gone, but also 70,000 other accounts. So it's a little bit hard to, to tease out what the full effect is of just Donald Trump's account compared to these like wider actions that were taken. On top of that, the measure of what misinformation was, they were actually just measuring terms related to election fraud, and those terms were down that week. Well, that might, they might have been down because we were talking about something else, which was uh, January, the January 6th attack. So there's some uncertainty in, in that uh, measure that I think got erased in a little bit in their headline. But I do think the trend 
of those actions that Twitter took to remove and suspend accounts that were repeat offenders in, in spreading misinformation, disinformation about election 2020, I think those actions ab- absolutely are going to, to reduce the amount of disinformation that's spreading on that platform and, and elsewhere. So, I mean, that answer about the long-term trend and your optimism that it will make a difference in the long term, I think leads to the question of like, well, then they should have done it earlier. And there certainly seem to be a lot of people who think that the obvious answer is that Trump should have been deplatformed earlier and we wouldn't be in this mess. And I mean, there have been a lot of people that making very strong arguments to that effect. The, the counter argument might be, I mean, first of all, you know, can you deplatform the president? Uh, second of all, you know, he's the president. There's some sort of public interest, as the platforms say, in knowing what he says. But third, I also wonder whether it would have fueled the grievance narrative and the allegations of illegitimacy around the election. And I'm just curious for your thoughts about whether there is or isn't an obvious answer of when do you kick the leader of the free world off Twitter? I think you've explained the the challenge for the platforms extremely well. Had they taken action like that earlier on Donald Trump's account, they would have just played into this narrative that he was cheated. He was cheated by the media, he's been cheated by big tech, and he's been cheated by the election the election infrastructure. These are his claims, right? And so by suspending his account, that would have certainly fed into, in, into those, those grievances. And I don't think uh, it necessarily would have changed what happens on January 6th. But you never know, right? It's it's hard to go back and, and undo this. I do think there were other actions that could have been taken short of suspension. And we can see that the platforms begin to tiptoe into those kinds of actions over the summer. They begin to add labels. They begin to take away the retweet button. They begin to take these actions. Unfortunately, they usually took them about two hours too late. Uh, so the, the the tweet had already spread through most of its, you know, they, Donald Trump has so many accounts that just sit there and watch his account and retweet it. Um, that that any anytime he tweets, it just it spreads extremely quickly. I had always suggested that they put his tweets in a holding pattern, go look at them, and then decide whether or not to add a label or put a no re- before they let him post. And so something like that, and I know that would be difficult, but something like that, I think would have been an interim solution that would have helped them kind of address this this rapid wildfire of disinformation, but would have gone short of like completely stopping his account. So you could stop his account from posting disinformation, but he could still post information about other things. So um, I think there were other actions that could have been taken, but but it was it's been really interesting up until COVID-19 in the spring, we didn't see them take any actions on, on political leaders. And then we first see them kind of tiptoe and they took an action on, on one of Bolsonaro's tweets, the Brazilian president with misinformation about COVID-19. And then they begin to take action on Donald Trump and others in, in that context before. So there's this little, there's this kind of escalation of what the platforms were willing to do across the summer and then into the election and, and now into the post-election period. So let's talk a little bit more then about what platforms have have done in your mind that that has worked and what they've done that that hasn't worked. And also, you know, what more you might want to see. As you say, there are a lot of possibilities here beyond just taking something down. One of the hard things that we have to think about is the platforms, we don't start from scratch anymore. 
we're already where we are. The, the network connections are already there. People already know which groups to go to, to, to find what they want to find. And we already have anti-vaccine communities and conspiracy theory communities and networks of QAnon accounts on Twitter that are like, uh, they're so highly followed that all of the accounts have like 50,000 followers because they're all following each other, right? So these really dense networks of accounts. And, and so in some ways, like, you know, the actions they take now, maybe if they'd taken them four or five years ago, they could have really made a difference. So the recommendation systems that helped all these people find each other, the follow back mechanisms that they used to gain the system, you know, how they promoted certain influencers with their, with their algorithms that, that choose which information to show us and which information to hide. All of that is how we, you know, we got here today, but now we've already got these networks. And so short of like suspending the accounts or dissolving their network connections on Twitter and short of like getting rid of some of these groups and maybe even getting rid of some of the group mechanisms, certainly getting rid of the group recommendations that bring more groups like the ones you're already into you. These are the kinds of things that like design things that have nothing to do with necessarily suspensions, but design decisions that they could, they could make going forward. And in terms of actions, I do think things that like cut the ties are almost as valuable as taking the account out. Like the account can still say something, but these network ties were formed by, by gaming these systems and by some really toxic design decisions that the platforms had made, not knowing how they were going to play out. And so clipping those network connections may actually have more value than necessarily than just suspending individual accounts. And, but it's hard. I mean, I, I understand that would be hard to do. And then the users will be mad at you, possibly not as mad as they would be if you're suspending them. But to think about how the recommendations and the networks have, have led us to where we are today. And how do we unwind some of that to make these systems a little less toxic? So I completely agree that we have seen so much more experimentation in this space over the past sort of 10 months than we, I think, could even have imagined or thought possible given the years and years of reticence for platforms to really do anything. And I'm, I'm very excited about getting out of the takedown, leave up, false binary that we were sort of stuck in for content moderation for so long. But there is still a lot of takedown, leave up sort of going on. And we've seen a lot of takedowns in the last week, especially. And as we were talking before about the 70,000 QAnon accounts just on Twitter that were taken down. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on this debate that's going on around the trade-offs between deplatforming people and communities from the major platforms so that they aren't in the mainstream versus the risks of pushing them into darker corners of the web where they might radicalize further because they're sort of stuck in, in more of an echo chamber and also that it, they become harder to track, which I imagine might be a problem for you in, in your research, whether it creates challenges when, when people are sort of more dispersed. So I, I, I'm curious for your thoughts. Do you, where do you stand on the effects of deplatforming these groups? Yeah, I think there's going to be trade-offs for for deplatforming, obviously, and we've, we're already seeing sort of migrations from one platform to another, whether from the accounts getting suspended or just the perception of censorship. Groups, uh, individuals, and in groups have moved first to Parler, and from Parler, I don't know where they're moving, Telegram, other places. And when they get they go from these more public platforms to more private channels, it is a lot harder to track them. As a in terms of our research group, we focus only on public data, and so. Um, so it does, it takes them away from our view and beyond just the research, but the, the actual experiences that these people are having, certainly by removing them from these more mainstream platforms, we 
create healthier environments in the mainstream platforms and fewer pathways, perhaps, into sort of recruiting into these groups. But the people, for the people that are already there and are now moving into these other spaces, they become more isolated, more insulated, and possibly um, more extreme in their in their echo chambers where they're migrating to on these different platforms. And so, yeah, this is absolutely a trade-off. Uh, and it's one of those things that like, hey, if we had done this, if we had deplatformed QAnon in 2018, it, you know, there would be only a very tiny portion, you know, of people there and it, it wouldn't be a really important thing. But QAnon proliferated and really blossomed in these public spaces, recruited new people, Facebook, Twitter, and now it's it's quite large. I can't get I can't give you a number because we're we're still trying to figure out what exactly that is. But but it's you know in the last six months especially you know really attracted new people into the into that group maybe eight months now. And uh, if they all move with them you know into these more toxic spaces, I think that can be problematic. I do think there's going to be some decay for even people that are QAnon adherents won't follow some of the, the conversations into these other platforms, they'll still prefer to, to use the, one, the platforms that they understand and know. And so I do think there'll be some decay, but um, yeah, so, so it's, it's definitely a trade-off. Um, you're going to get a s- smaller groups with less ability to recruit, but they're going to become more, uh, more extreme and, and possibly um, more violent. So as part of this, there there seems to be kind of a push to what we might call alt tech platforms. So like Parler and Gab as sort of alternatives to these mainstream sites. And as we're recording this on, so this is on Tuesday, January 19th, Parler is now has bit, had its hosting pulled by Amazon Web Services, now seems to be hosted somewhere in Russia. And as far as I understand, has kind of been blinking on and off intermittently, uh, which I think raises interesting questions about whether these sort of alt platforms are ever going to be able to climb over the technical hurdles that are caused by mainstream companies sort of pulling out the different Jenga blocks in the stack. I mean, do do you think that these sort of alternative gathering places are ever going to manage to take off or is it just a blip that's going to die out? This is an interesting question. I don't know that I that I have a solid answer that, for this on myself. I mean, I could probably argue both sides of this conversation. With something like Parler, whether it's Parler or another manifestation, there are a lot of people with a lot of money who would invest in a conservative slash libertarian slash alt-right environment. And they may, um, and they could make something, I think they could make something like parlor work with the right kind of infrastructure investment and, and funding. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if parlor does or, or something similar to parlor does sort of semi succeed over the next few years. But it's, you know, I, I don't make hard predictions because the world is, very unpredictable uh, at this at this point, or or it feels very volatile these days. Yes, uh, th- th- that's for sure. So, I mean, I guess this is a silly question to ask um, following that response, but I am curious for your sort of prediction, or or not really prediction, but just sort of what you're thinking you'll be watching going forward. You know, I think there's sort of a sense that the election in some form is over now, and there will be a new uh, administration. And so I'm curious what you think sort of the next year in mis and disinformation will be and what you'll be focusing on. To be perfectly honest, 
as an academic researcher, I'm exhausted right now from the pace of research we've been trying that we've been doing, trying to keep up with with things. And I think our next year is going to really be focused on looking backwards at our COVID-19 data, at our election 2020 data, and really trying to work out what kinds of things happened, possibly looking at um, how platform actions changed things over time. So we may kind of track that through these weeks and into the next few weeks. But but a lot of our work is actually going to probably be more reflection and backwards looking for, for a little bit here. In terms of other people that are that are capable of, of, of moving with the phenomenon, the phenomenon moves so fast these days. I think there are going to be some interesting questions uh, that we've already brought up here about migrations of users into different places. And I, I am afraid that we're going to see sort of stochastic terrorism motivated in sort of individuals or small groups over the next few years, um, taking action in, in ways that are potentially violent and, and harmful for society. So I'm a little worried about some of that. And I think we'll see that being potentially a focal, a focal point of, of some research going forward and, and people watching how that, that kind of activity is motivated or in cases where it's organized, organized. So that sounds pretty pessimistic, <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to ask you, you know, how you feel about the information ecosystem right now compared to when we talked to you last year. Are you more or less optimistic about the outlook for 2021 or sort of to put it another way, you know, just how screwed are we? I, this is, this is a hard question. I mean, you look back to March 16th. Is that when we talked? I, I can't, I can't even remember who we were back then, but I do remember early on being surprised that misinformation was not moving so quickly. And then that very quickly it changed and, and it became, you know, accelerated all the way through the summer and it's just kind of defined the year of 2020. I don't think we can keep that pace going. I do see some um, some slowing down, but maybe that's just me being hopeful for my personal uh, mental health is that things will will slow down a little bit. But I do I do think we're going to get a little bit of slowing down of some of the the, the news cycles and in the way some of these narratives move, but also things are going to start to simmer or stew maybe in in some of these places that aren't as visible anymore. And so I think that's that if if a disinformation research is going to shift, it's going to have to shift with the phenomenon, and it may be shifting from these more public platforms into some of these darker corners of the internet and. And I do think that those, if we're seeing an intersection between things in the physical world and things online, it's going to be those connections rather than, you know, another stop the steal movement. But I can be wrong. So I'm not surprised you're exhausted. You've been doing uh, God's work, tracking all of the sort of the mess that has been the last year in the information ecosystem. Kate, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.